Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a patron, an Amazon book list, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. Lord Lucan, a name of considerable infamy, not as a member of the aristocracy, but for the murder of his children's nanny in a house in the elitist district of Belgravia, London, in 1973, and his subsequent disappearance. It was a story that the press went to town on, a classic us-versus-them tale of class superiority and those that would seek to protect the hierarchy at all costs. But how much of it was based on truth? and how much just a convenient narrative for the journalists that covered the case. It was a case that was launched into mythical status after the Lord himself vanished without trace, leaving a question that runs until today. Where in the world is Lord Lucan? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Today we've got quite an interesting episode in that it's super famous, or at least, I'm not sure globally, but at least in England it's it's really famous. It's, you know, like legendary kind of mythical status. At least the name Lord Lucan is is kind of mythically famous, I guess. Um, but I never really considered it for the podcast because it was almost like so famous that it's just so easy to overlook when it's so in your face almost, I guess. And I, I actually grew up in a, t- a town that's related to the story, which I will talk about in the second half. But yeah, I, I grew up in a town that that is related pretty heavily to the case. So it was even more famous, you know, I, although I was born after the fact, about seven years after it all happened, people, my parents' sort of generation and and older, remembered it quite well and, and spoke about it a lot. So, yeah, I just sort of overlooked it completely. And it wasn't until I got the book through the post that made me kind of sort of step back and think, oh, wow, yeah, I could actually do this as a Dark Histories episode. It would be great. <laughs> so that's why we've kind of wound up where we are today. A note about that book, it was sent by listener Gretchen. So Gretchen, thanks very much. Is that really helpful to me? Um, and really great because like I say, I would have probably completely overlooked this one that say when I saw the book, I was like, oh, people are interested in this, blind me. Because I just assumed that, you know, it's just, it was like I say, when things are that close, perhaps you just sort of overlook them. But anyway, before we start, just want to give a quick thanks to new patrons. We've got Katria, uh, Andrea. Summer, Rowan, uh, Benjamin, which is a quality name, by the way. Uh, Hummingbirds, Eric and Alexandria. So thanks very much for your support. Really appreciate that. I think this one might be a bit of a long one. So let's get started. This is The Disappearance of Lord Lucan. 
Britain in the 1970s is often pictured as a time when the excesses of the post-war good times caught up with Britain. The colossal hangover from the swinging 60s that plunged a country into a cultural dark age. It was a decade that saw fashion go backwards and the living room of houses turn into lurid caverns of endless tobacco-stained brown and beige. People were struggling, workers were striking, electricity was not a guarantee and bombs were exploding in the streets. At least, this is the popular stereotype, but the reality does contain elements of all of these things. After the post-war boom, Britain had become complacent in its affluence and globalisation had not only allowed competing nations to catch up, but in many cases surpassed the industry of a country that had been resting on past glories for too long. War in the Middle East caused oil prices to soar, coal miners went on strike over wages, dock workers followed in support and soon the supply lines for energy were throttled so heavily that power cuts became a daily inconvenience. A state of emergency was announced and the three-day working week introduced to alleviate the demand. There followed a brief period where a hung parliament ruled for the first time since before the Second World War and although it didn't last long, the inflation that followed was close to 30%. Amongst all of this were the headlines concerning the friction between Britain and Ireland. The IRA grew in stature and violence from both sides boiled over with tragic results. Britain was in a sorry political state. Even the Prime Minister himself was famously quoted as saying, if I was a young man, I would emigrate. But so too was the 1970s a period of great cultural change. Despite all the grim headlines, there was colour TV, foreign holidays, the androgynous fashions of David Bowie, and at the end of the decade, a female Prime Minister. By the mid-1970s, the new consumer-oriented working and middle classes became dangerously close to blowing traditional boundaries, whilst the upper classes, who had been under satirical attack for decades, were by now severely outmoded, not that they had the time to notice, nor care, between arranging for their food deliveries from Harrods and tossing money that they didn't have away in illegal casinos. Richard John Bingham was one such man, born into a family of Anglo-Irish aristocracy, he would inherit his father's peerage to become the 7th Earl of Lucan, trappings and all. He was affectionately known as Lucky Lucan to his friends, Lord Lucan to everyone else. Richard John Bingham, better known as John, was born to mother and father Caitlin and George James Patrick Bingham, the 6th Earl of Lucan, on the 18th of December 1934. Whilst in the hospital, his mother Caitlin received a telegram from Buckingham Palace congratulating them on the birth of their son. John was the second of four children and the first son. He had an elder sister named Jane, born in 1932, and a younger sister, Sarah, born 1936. The last child was his youngest brother, Hugh, who was born in 1939. His father had served in the army during the First World War and would go on to serve again during the Second World War eventually retiring from the military in 1949 after succeeding his father's title of Lord. He went on to sit on the Labour benches in the House of Lords. Somewhat unusually for their background, both his mother and father were left-leaning liberals who devoted large portions of their life campaigning for a breed of politics which went quite against their own way of life as lords and ladies. Active in their politics, John's father would eventually take the role of Labour Chief Whip, whilst his mother Caitlin was a Labour councillor who canvassed the area with fervour, 
and was described as wildly left-leaning. The family lived in Eaton Square in Belgravia, a highly affluent district in central London, whose residents over the years included numerous ex-Prime Ministers, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Michael Caine, Virginia Woolf, Frederick Chopin and Wolfgang Mozart. Though in 1940, aged six years old, Richard John Bingham was transported out of the country due to the dangers of the German bombing in the Second World War. Like many children, he was first evacuated to rural country areas. The Bingham children wound up in Wales. However, like most well-off Londoners, they were soon sent to more distant shores. The children were packed on a boat and sent to the USA to live with family friends, the Brady Tuckers, an exceptionally rich family who had profited heavily within the American banking system and sat amongst the elite of the country. Whilst there, they lived in the family's large post-Civil War period estate in Westchester, New York, though John himself was quickly packed off and sent to boarding school. Feeling alienated, this was a move that the young John Bingham hated. He ran away on at least one occasion and was eventually removed from the school. The children returned to London in February 1945 and now nine years old, Richard John attended Arnold House Prep School where he displayed signs of promising intelligence. But likewise, he also displayed difficult delinquency. His sisters later speculated that the years spent in America, removed from his family and further removed from his surrogates, had caused him to be deeply unhappy. His parents, against their better judgments, sent him to Eton in an effort to gain him the attention that they suspected he needed. And whilst John did become far happier in the elite surroundings of a school that was founded by King Henry VI in 1440, and that boasted alumni, or Old Etonians as they are known, of princes, novelists and actors, it was not for the reasons his parents had hoped. Rather than settle down, John continued his delinquent streak at Eton, taking up illegal gambling, slinking off to the nearby race courses. He eventually became the school's bookkeeper, running the bets for not only himself, but all his classmates too. In the evenings, he would sneak off to clubs, and though despite this, he still managed to become the captain of his house, an effort that clearly demonstrated his popularity amongst the other boys, and if not his good conduct, perhaps his energy to the schoolmasters. All of this good humour on behalf of John, however, presented a problem. His left-leaning parents were supposedly never comfortable with him attending such an elite academy, and now he appeared happier, they sought to pull him out of Eton and to send him to the local grammar school. This was not an amusing thought to the young man who had found a position in life that he believed suited his breeding. At Eton, he was surrounded by people as well-to-do as himself, and he positively relished the life he was living. In what could be seen as an act of rebellion against his parents, John Bingham had absorbed the traditions of aristocracy to the full. In 1953, aged 18, John left Eton to join the army. Up until 1960, national service was still in effect in varying degrees for young British men aged 17 to 21. He graduated as a second lieutenant in the Coldstream Guards, a regiment in the army with roots as far back as 1650 the oldest in the British Army. Upon graduation, he was sent to serve in Crayfield in Germany. Until this point, John's gambling had been capped by the illegalities of the practice in Britain. He made do with betting among friends, but was limited to race courses. However, in Germany, casinos were perfectly legal, 
and so John spent much of his time in Crayfield playing poker in the barracks or slinking off in the evenings to play the tables in the town. It was also a period for John that cemented his motivations in life. Until now, he had shown desire to live up to his family name in terms of class and wealth, but during this time in Germany, he became obsessed with wealth and the life of luxury that it allowed. In a letter he wrote to his uncle, he spelled it out quite clearly. I am perfectly happy now, that is to say, I'm not unhappy, but I know that with two mil in the bank, I should be happier still. Who wouldn't? It wouldn't be a case of buying happiness, but motor cars, yachts, expensive holidays and security for the future would give myself and a lot of other people a lot of pleasure. These are some of my carrots, and I'm certainly not ashamed of them. After he finished his two years military service, John entered a position in the city working for a small merchant bank named William Brands in Fenchurch Street in London. He was on a yearly wage of £2,500, a sum that amounted to around the value of an average house. However, it was small fright to John Bingham. He felt that hard work would not pay off for him in the long run and he saw a dead end in banking. In his years working in the city, he became close friends with Stephen Raphael, a stockbroker and skilled backgammon player who took him under his wing and taught him to gamble in a more professional role. In 1962, when British laws around gambling relaxed and the first casino opened in London, Bingham was among the dukes, marquees, earls and cabinet ministers to become the first members. The Claremont Club opened in Mayfair in 1962 and its owner, John Aspinall, knew exactly the sort of clientele he wanted to corner. Built as an elite and exclusive club, it was lavishly decorated with chandeliers and glamorous members. These rich members knew how to gamble. They spent big. It was high stakes for both the players and Aspinall himself, at least on the surface, because as everyone knows, the house always wins. By now, John Bingham had left the family home and was living in his own flat in Park Crescent. He drove an Aston Martin, went skiing in mountain resorts, gambling in Monte Carlo, and raced the old powerboat here and there. Naturally, he spent the majority of his free time in the Claremont. His game was Chemin de Fer, a variation on the table card game of Baccarat, and the Chemi table at the Claremont was where all the most glamorous players would sit after their evening meals in the restaurant on the floor below. Amongst the fancy artwork hanging on the walls and the expensive wine drunk at the bar, John won vast sums of money and lost more. The genius behind Aspinall's club was knowing that the rich always paid. It was simply not gentlemanly or proper conduct to get upset when one loses, and so in keeping with their class, the players would remain stony-faced and emotionless whether they won or lost. In fact, in 1962 when the club opened, there didn't even exist a rule that could enforce a gambling debt to be paid. Amongst the clientele of the Claremont, however, a law was just not necessary. A gentleman of class will always pay. Besides, if you didn't pay, where else could a person of such high standards go? And so, within the walls of the club, John Bingham played his role in the grand illusion. He mixed with high society, spent sums of money that would make most wince, and at the end of the night, as the sun rose, he would go home to bed only to repeat it all again the next day. It was at the club that John met and socialised with his friends for the majority of the days of the week. They were known as the Claremont Set 
and included John Aspinall himself, James Goldsmith, Charles Benson, Daniel Minotsagen, Ian Maxwell Scott, Stephen Raphael, Michael Stoop and Dominic Elworth, an exclusive and elite core of upper-class gamblers that John Bingham slipped into with ease. He was tall, charming, handsome and very much liked amongst this group, who affectionately nicknamed him Lucky Lucan. Though he was always a central figure on the Claremont set, his friends often thought of him as introverted, and whilst most assumed that he should have been quite a playboy, he rarely showed interest in women, instead preferring the man's world of gambling. It came as some surprise to his friends then, when in March of 1963, he met Veronica Duncan, and by November of the same year, the couple wed. Veronica Duncan was born in 1937. Her father was Major Charles Morehouse Duncan, and her mother Thelma Duncan, though when she was just two years old, her father died in a fatal car accident. Her mother remarried, and the couple ran a pub named the Wheatsheaf Inn before moving to South Africa, where Veronica attended boarding school. Upon returning to England, she attended St Swithin's, an all-girl boarding school in Winchester, and after her graduation, went on to study graphic design at art school in Bournemouth. After she finished in education in 1957, Veronica moved to a studio flat in Gloucester Place, London, a stone's throw from Regent's Park, and whilst not quite as fancy as Belgravia, it wasn't what one might call a terrible place to live. She worked as a model and a secretary, helping to run a small business that printed scripts. But a few months later, she moved in with her sister, Christina, and the pair shared a flat in Kensington. She had a brief love affair with an older man, but it ended prematurely when she found out that he was already married. Throughout the time living with her sister, she got on well enough, though her sister later pointed out that she thought she was deeply unhappy and showed signs of depression. I was the happy one, and she was always the troubled one. In 1963, Christina married William Shand Kidd, one of John Bingham's closest friends. Veronica was the head bridesmaid at the wedding, and three months later, in March, Veronica met John at a golf club where she had been attending a party with her sister. The couple struck it up, and although this came as a surprise to some, others pointed towards their shared feelings of separation as children and their similar introverted characters as a key factor in the sudden change in John's outlook towards relationships. After a brief courtship, the couple were married on the 20th of November 1963 at the Holy Trinity Church, the same venue that they had both attended just months previously. Four months after the wedding, on the 21st of January 1964, John's father passed away after suffering a stroke. He left John £50,000 and a trust which paid £12,000 a year, along with a family home at 46 Lower Belgrave Street, back in Belgravia. This was no small sum of money. £50,000 was the equivalent of around £1 million today, and the £12,000 trust paid the equivalent of around £125,000. A more sensible, money-minded person would have been set for life. But John Bingham, now the 7th Earl of Lucan, or, to use the more infamous, Lord Lucan, was anything but sensible when it came to finances. In 1965, Lucan quit his job at the Merchant Bank and instead took up full-time gambling. It is undeniable that he had some talent for gambling. The sheer amount that he was staking on each bet in the Claremont on a nightly basis 
He would have bankrupted himself within weeks if he didn't. But it was nevertheless a dangerous move and one that his friends advised against and his family protested. It was perhaps even more foolish given that just months earlier his first child Francis had been born. The couple hired a nanny named Lillian Jenkins and in good times the family lived a sort of surreal ideal with expensive holidays in the south of France, playing golf, the horses, hobnobbing with the elites in Monte Carlo and Italy. But there were bad times too. Veronica hated Lucan's gambling habit, which was by now just part of daily life, and the Claremont Club had become a home from home. Lucan would go there in the morning, return home to change for dinner, and then the couple would dine in the club and then spend the evening Lucan gambling at the shemmy table whilst Veronica sat on the delightfully named widow's bench with all the other wives. It was not a bad life. To many it would have seemed like quite an enjoyable one even. But for Veronica, who never quite felt she could fit and who was suffering from postnatal depression, it was a struggle. Later her sister said that she had in fact been suffering for some time with depression. She hadn't been well for a long time, from long before marriage and so one was aware that he was in for a rocky ride, and we weren't quite sure that he realised to what extent. None of this would have been helped by the alienation that she would have felt sitting on the widow's bench in the Claremont, surrounded by people she struggled to get along with, whilst her husband tossed money into the abyss for hours on end. Lucan's friends were aware, and it seems likely that Lucan was too, but for his part, he had explained his gambling lifestyle to her before the marriage, and as far as he was concerned, that was the end of the matter. Stuart Wheeler, one of Lucan's friends, said of Veronica, His wife would have had a terrible time of it. I got the impression that she was very lonely there. She may have been very lonely at the club, although she did at one point tell the press that she enjoyed it there, but what other choice did she have anyway? By her own admission, she was an introvert, and she had had troubles making friends, and so, night by night, the nightmarish existence continued. For the rich elite, the Claremont was still the place to be, but for the Lucans, it was one of the only places to be. The Lucans had two more children, George in 1967 and Camilla in 1970. Both times Veronica fell into bouts of postnatal depression. She would spend the days in her bedroom with the curtains closed, shut off from the outside world until once again it was time to go to the club. By 1972, the cracks in the facade of the relationship were beginning to show. The reality of their marriage, that they were two somewhat broken people, unwilling or unable to give each other the things each needed, was taking a fatal toll. Veronica was struggling with depression, and Lucan was not forthcoming with empathy. It was not in his breeding as a stoic aristocrat. In the same way he did losses without flinching, the same facade needed to be in place when dealing with domestic arguments, especially in public and especially in the 1970s when mental health issues were considered by the majority as something that needed hiding away. In 1967, he did try and take her to the Priory to get psychiatric help, perhaps the only way he knew how to deal with the situation rather than turning the light on himself and considering his own role in the relationship. Veronica was prescribed lithium and flufenazine, both medications with sedative properties. Once again in 1971, Lucan attempted to have her hospitalised, this time in Greenway's nursing home, but she promptly ran away. Lucan claimed that she was unstable 
Whilst Veronica claimed he was violent towards her, Luke encountered by saying that she tossed herself around the house, causing self-harm to bring up bruises. She had loud public outbursts in the Claremont, culminating eventually in her tossing a glass of wine into another woman's face. And all the while, Lucan continued to gamble. The whole thing was a nightmare, her sister said, for everyone involved. In December of 1972, Veronica sacked the nanny against Lucan's wishes. They spent the Christmas holidays at their sister's house, but on Boxing Day, had a huge fight that led to Veronica walking out and returning home early. It was all too much. Lucan called the GP, confirmed that she was unfit and could be left, and on January the 7th, the pair separated, with Lucan moving into a flat behind Lower Belgrave Street in Eaton Row. After the separation, Veronica employed a new nanny named Stefania Savika from Sweden, whilst Lucan holed up in his flat, another piece of the inheritance from his father, directly behind the house in Lower Belgrave Street. Lucan wanted custody of the three children, however, and so he rented a five-bedroom flat in nearby Elizabeth Street and employed a nanny of his own, Yordanka Kotlarova. On the 23rd of March, he gained a temporary court order for the children's custody by submitting evidence that his wife was not fit enough to act as a mother. He approached Stefania and his son and daughter whilst they were in the park, showed the nanny the court order and she handed them over to him without fuss. Lucan then went to Francis's school where he once again showed the headmaster the court order and took custody of Francis on the same day. Veronica was furious, so much so that Stefania called the doctor in concern for her well-being. Custody being given to the father in a separation was incredibly unusual but her doctors had given evidence against her and her prescription medications would not help matters. The full custody hearing was set to take place in July. Lucan's case against Veronica pivoted on the point that she was not fit as a mother, whilst Veronica's case against Lucan lay in his unstable future as a professional gambler, as well as murkier details, stating that he was sexually deviant and violent. On the 20th of July, nine days after the start of the hearing, Lucan was advised by his solicitors to concede the case. With his money severely drying up at an alarming rate, and with the evidence given by Veronica's doctors that she was not suffering from schizophrenia and that her depression was being controlled by lithium, the outcome was nailed on to tilt in the mother's favour. Lucan conceded and Veronica gained full custody of the children, with the caveat that she must hire a live-in nanny to help her with taking due care for the children. Lucan was given limited access on every other weekend. What followed after the hearing was nothing short of a 15-month obsession on the part of Lucan to regain custody of the three children. He hired a private investigator from a company named Devlin & Co to follow Veronica and the nanny and to stake out the house in Lower Belgrave Street and he did much the same himself, often parking up outside to watch through the windows. He recorded telephone conversations, up to 70 hours worth in total, in an effort to prove that she was unfit to be a mother. He was gambling and losing at a pretty steady rate and paying maintenance for the children as well as funding Veronica's life, including her food account at Harrods, which was taking a heavy toll and that was before the employment of the solicitors and investigators. He had also been ordered to pay all of Veronica Slitzer's fees for the custody hearing, costing him around £20,000 in total. He began drinking hard and gambling harder, 
borrowing money from friends and family. At one point, he wrote to the Brady Tuckers in America, asking for an obscene loan of £125,000 in order to pay off Veronica to buy back custody of his children. Friends who spent time with him during this period spoke of his obsessive focus on the custody battle and of how, at dinner parties, he spoke of little else. All of this too took a toll on Veronica, who claimed that Lucan was trying to drive her mad or to damage her mental stability, though in truth, she was doing a fair job before Lucan's involvement. She hired and sacked six nannies in 13 months, never able to get on with a single one, until she hired Sandra River in June of 1974. Sandra River was 29 years old when she took the job as nanny in 46 Lower Belgrave Street. She had only been on the books with the Belgravia Domestic Agency for a few weeks after retiring from a job in a cigarette company in Croydon. Her parents had taken Sandra and her two children to live in Australia when Sandra was only two years old, but they returned to England in 1955. After she left school, she became something of a drifter, working a series of jobs from a hairdresser's apprentice to a secretary, as well as several stints as a nanny, but she never settled into any for a long period. Her first serious relationship had broken down rapidly, and after the breakup, she was treated in hospital for depression. Upon her release, she continued to work as a nanny and finally appeared to settle down when she met a builder and the pair had a child. The relationship once again failed shortly after the birth, however, and in 1965, upon suggesting giving her child up for adoption, her parents took the responsibility. She had a second child two years later with another man that she had been seeing, but later found out that he was already married. She put the baby up for adoption though this time her parents allowed his adoption to go ahead without getting involved. In 1967, she met Roger River, a seaman in the Royal Navy, and the couple married in June, after which Sandra continued to skip from job to job, mostly as a nanny, whilst her husband became employed as an oil tanker driver. During the times that he was away, Roger suspected Sandra of having an affair, and the couple's marriage broke down. They separated in May of 1974 when Roger left to return to live with his parents. Sandra filed herself onto the books as a nanny and domestic carer in an agency that serviced the Belgravia district that was owned by her friend and she had been working for several weeks caring for an elderly couple when she took the position of living carer with Veronica and the Lucan children. Sandra took well to her new position in Lower Belgrave Street, and so too did the children and Veronica take well to her. She worked in the house six days a week, taking Thursdays as her night off, and for the first time in some years, Veronica and the children lived in relative harmony. Lucan still maintained his surveillance in an effort to gain evidence against his wife, and he continued to gamble. By November of 1974, All four of his bank accounts based in the UK were considerably overdrawn and he owed debts to both his electricity company and to the Claremont Club. The club itself had been sold to Playboy by Aspinall and whilst it was no longer the elite stronghold of its former glory days, it was still an upmarket gentleman's club, though it now had unfriendlier management towards Lucan, who could no longer leave IOUs quite as often as he once could. On the 23rd of October, He had dinner with Michael Stoop, one of his old Claremont buddies, where he arranged to borrow his car. Stoop offered him his Mercedes, 
but Lucan instead asked to borrow his much more average Ford Corsair. He claimed he needed the car to be more covert to allow him to keep up the constant vigils on 46 Lower Belgrave Street. Whilst his life was in a chaotic state, he still maintained his relationship with his children, both on his officially awarded weekends and in many other situations he, by rights, shouldn't have been doing, such as attending his daughter's school play. On the 7th of November, he had dinner with a friend, a publisher with whom he discussed the possibility of publishing an article on gambling, and at 8pm he drove him home to Chelsea. At just after 10pm the same night, Veronica fell through the doors of the Plumber's Arms pub in Belgravia, covered in blood. Help me, help me, she cried out to the barman. I've just escaped from being murdered. My children, my children. He's murdered the nanny. The barman of the Plumber's Arms called the police who arrived shortly after. Police Constable Chapman took her to the hospital where she received 60 stitches across seven wounds on her head. Meanwhile, Police Constable Beddick and Police Sergeant Baker kicked the door in at 46 Belgrave Street. It was past 10pm and the house inside was silent, in complete darkness. At the top of the stairs leading into the basement lay a 9-inch piece of lead piping weighing 2.5 pounds. They tried the light switches to no avail and found out when they reached the bottom of the stairs that the bulb had been removed and placed on a chair. The orange glow of the street lamps outside cast enough light for them to make out a pile of rags lying on the floor, however, and upon inspection, they found the body of Sandra Rivet stuffed into a US Post mailbag. At 10.20pm, Detective Sergeant Graham Forsyth arrived at the house and later described the scene. There was blood all over the shop. When I saw the girl, I thought, Christ, they've beheaded her. Sandra had not been beheaded, but she had been badly beaten. She had six large wounds on her head along with bruising to her head, shoulders and right arm. Blood had covered the basement landing and been smeared across the walls in what appeared to be an apparent struggle. When Dr Michael Smith arrived at 10.45pm, the medical inspector for the Met Police was immediately satisfied that the death had not been due to natural causes. The scene was now the centre of a murder investigation. Further details of the scene were investigated and evidence was collected. They found that although the front entrance in the basement had been locked, the back door which led to a small rear garden surrounded by six feet high walls and topped by three feet of trellis was unlocked, though no evidence of forced entry was found anywhere. Bloodstains were found throughout the basement including some footprints and curiously blood was found on some of the ivy on one of the garden walls, though after extensive questioning No one in the area had seen anyone leave the house that night. By 1am, when Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson arrived, the scene was something of a mess. Upwards of 50 police officers had been traipsing across the scene, and what might have once been an important hotbed of evidence had become compromised at best, and utterly useless at worst. Policeman Graham Forsyth, meanwhile, took on the duties of breaking and entering Lord Lucan's flat in Eaton Road behind Belgrave Street. He found a space that appeared relatively unlived in, though there was a suit laid out on the bed, along with Lucan's wallet and car keys on the bedside cabinet. His passport was found in a drawer, and the battery to his Mercedes, which was parked outside, was found to be flat, though there was no sign of Lucan. There was no sign of Lucan, which was by now not particularly surprising, 
given the fact that Veronica had told the police that the attacker was her husband. Lucan arrived at the house of his friends Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott in Uckfield, Sussex, around 50 miles south of London at around 11.30pm. Ian was not at home, but Susan let him in and made him a drink while she listened to his story. He told her that he had been walking past 46 Lower Belgrove Street earlier that night when he noticed a man downstairs in the basement attacking his wife. He let himself in through the front door and called out to Veronica, which caused the attacker to run off. Veronica told him that someone had killed the nanny and accused Lucan of hiring a hitman to kill her, a claim that she had made several times before. After he took Veronica upstairs to lie down on the bed to see to her wounds, she ran out of the house whilst he went to the bathroom to wet a towel. Unable to find Veronica, he left and drove to Uckfield. After telling this story to Susan, he used the Maxwell Scott's home phone to call his mother, who was by now in the company of several policemen. His mother asked Lucan if he would like to speak with them, but he declined, saying that he would call them in the morning. He then sat down in the study of the house and he wrote two letters to his friend, Bill Shan Kidd, the first repeating the story that he had told Susan and the second detailing an upcoming sale of some of Lucan's family heirlooms and advising to which bank accounts the money should be sent in order to pay off debts. It was signed Lucky. Susan gave him four Valiant tablets after Lucan asked her if she had anything to help him sleep and he left, leaving her to post the letters to Bill Shan Kidd. Later, he wrote a further two letters on paper torn from a notebook to Michael Stoop, the owner of the borrowed Ford Corsair. My dear Michael, I have had a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence. However, I won't bore you with anything or involve you except to say that when you come across my children, which I hope you will, please tell them that you knew me and that all I cared about was them. The fact that a crooked solicitor and a rotten psychiatrist destroyed me between them will be of no importance to the children. I gave Bill Shan Kidd an account of what actually happened, but judging by my last effort in court, no one, let alone a 67-year-old judge, would believe, and I no longer care except that my children should be protected. Yours ever, John. The second letter was never turned into the police, but came out years later in 2004 when a journalist, James Fox, interviewed Michael concerning Lucan. The full details of the letter are lost, but from Fox's notes, he had written, Smallish paper, no envelope, keys in glove compartment, in Norman Street. Please forget you ever lent it to me. Burn envelope. Though Stoop insists he never burnt the envelope, It was nevertheless destroyed when his waste paper bin was emptied later on the same day that he had received it, so it remains a mystery from where it was posted. On Sunday the 10th of November, the Ford Corsair was found parked in Norman Road in a small port town named Newhaven in Sussex, some 16 miles from Uckfield. In the boot, police found a second piece of lead piping that closely matched the piece found in Lower Belgrave Street, though an exact match was never confirmed. They also found an unopened bottle of vodka, but no keys in the glove compartment. The police were immediately diverted to the small town. Fishing boats were searched along with the surrounding countryside, but to no avail. Frogmen were dispatched to search the harbour, but no evidence of Lucan was found. He had vanished, leaving no trace. 
If Lucan's story sounded far-fetched, that was because it had been. It contained some remarkable coincidences. Not only that, but police found it differed almost entirely from Veronica's side of events, which she gave in a 20-page statement the day after the attack. Veronica had told police that on the evening of the attack, she had been watching TV with her children and Sandra Rivett upstairs on the third floor of Lower Belgrave Street. Sandra normally took Thursdays off, but on this occasion she had switched the days in order to go out with her boyfriend on Wednesday, the night before. At 8.55pm, Veronica put the three children to bed and Sandra asked her if she would like tea, disappearing off towards the basement kitchen. By 9.15, wondering where the tea had gotten to, Veronica went downstairs to chase up the matter when she found the lights in the basement were not working. Standing at the top of the stairs, she called down into the darkness. As she had done so, she felt an almighty thud on the back of her head and she was attacked from behind by a large man that she later recognised as her husband when he told her to shut up. The pair struggled as they fought in the hallway until Veronica, grabbing tight on Lucan's testicles, stopped the attacker cold. Exhausted from the brawl, the pair sat in the hallway and Veronica asked Lucan where Sandra was and he told her that he had killed her, that it was an error and that he had meant to kill Veronica herself. He then took Veronica to the second floor bedroom to inspect her injuries and she used this opportunity to flee to the Plumber's Arms pub to get help. This account differed in more ways than one, but it did sit with the story that was unfolding before the police. They had a body and a runaway husband who was making himself look very guilty indeed. It did, however, leave a gap of 30 minutes between the attack and Veronica showing up in the pub, though Veronica's recollection of the conversation the couple had during the time was only vague. The police double-checked that she saw no one else on that evening, but she replied comprehensively that she had not and that the man that she had seen was most definitely her husband. To bolster the unravelling pile of evidence that was stacking up against Lucan, the forensics of the crime scene, or at least what forensics could be done, were all backing Veronica's story. Police had found blood of the same category as the crime scene in the abandoned Four Corsair, along with some of Veronica's hair. There were some inconsistencies, however. No fingerprints could be found of Lucan's at the crime scene, and none in his own flat. Police had made such a mess of both scenes that it was altogether impossible. The blood in the hallway was two types, A and B, one matching Sandra and one matching Veronica, but it was in unusual places. Police put this down to transference. If Lucan had been covered in Sandra's blood, then it is completely understandable that some would have ended up back upstairs and on Veronica's clothing. But blood was also found on the sole of Veronica's left shoe, though she claimed to have never been in the basement. And what about the blood on the leaves in the rear garden? Police did search the area, but they found no one and found no witnesses that saw anyone leaving the house. So they called it a day. But they also found no witnesses that saw Luke and Lee either. Sandra's estranged ex-husband was found to have a solid alibi and he was dropped from suspicion almost immediately. And with so much evidence against him, the issue of blood transference became rather trivial for police who quite naturally viewed Lucan as the prime suspect and dismissed the idea of an intruder almost immediately. The question was, where was Lucan now? The first newspaper reports on the murder hit the evening editions of the press on the 8th of November. 
They contain very little information. The headline, Body of Nanny is found in sack at the home of Lady Lucan, was the most enlightening aspect of the small article. The police had not yet made any references as to who they thought was a suspect, however, and Lucan is only mentioned at the end of the article when it reads, Police were trying to trace Lord Lucan, whose home is at Eaton Row, to tell him about the death. Likewise, the news stories that hit the headlines on the 9th followed in a similar vein. Nanny murder riddle, here is hunted. Last night, police issued a photograph and a description of the Earl of Lucan, pictured above with the Countess before they were separated last year, and said that they would like to trace him to help with their inquiries. Though the paper did hint at an early theory that would define the case. One police theory about the nanny's murder was that it was a case of mistaken identity. Lady Lucan and Mrs Rivet, who started her job only five weeks ago, were of similar build and about the same age. In the dim light of the basement room, the killer could have struck at the wrong woman. Even on the 11th, after the car had been found in New Haven, the press were reporting only that the police were searching for Lord Lucan for questioning, though the obvious suggestions were helped along by dramatic stories of Lucan possibly crossing the channel to France on a powerboat. The headline on the 12th read simply, Where did he go? The search for Lord Lucan centred yesterday on the channel port of New Haven after a car he had borrowed was found in the town with bloodstains on the back seat. Interpol passed an alert to all French ports. The car was spotted by a detective on Sunday afternoon and at one time it was thought that Lord Lucan might have caught the evening ferry from New Haven to Dieppe, but the yard discounted the idea because passengers were screened on both sides of the channel. Police are holding Lord Lucan's passport but he could have used a temporary one to leave the country. Throughout yesterday, detectives followed up dozens of reports that the owl had been sighted. Police are satisfied that they know the killer's identity. The Countess has given detectives an account of what happened in her house in Belgravia, but Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson, who is leading the hunt, said, I cannot comment on what she told her. Meanwhile, an armed guard was placed in Veronica's hospital room keeping watch 24 hours a day, and the Claremont set, all of Lucan's friends, were finding themselves under heavy police questioning. Susan Maxwell-Scott said that she had not been alarmed to see Lord Lucan visit her on the night of the attack, as she had not heard anything about it on the TV or the radio. But there were many in the police who found Lord Lucan's friends difficult to deal with, and some suspected that this was not entirely unintentional. On the 12th of November, a warrant for Lucan's arrest was issued, and as such, the press reporting dropped the loose facade immediately. The headline on the 13th November in one paper read, Earl Wanted for Murder. This was a story the press could sink their teeth into. The upper classes were unpopular enough as it was, and now they had a story of a brutal Earl who murdered his nanny and attempted to murder his wife. He was daubed a playboy, whilst Veronica reenacted the fight scene for the Daily Express a paper with which she had signed an exclusive contract with upon her release from hospital. An article on the 14th of November stated the three lines of inquiry the police were following with their hunt for Lucan. 1. That he has left the country, although an unsigned cable which arrived at his flat offering him a place to stay in Haiti has been written off as a hoax. 2. That he is still in England, possibly in the New Haven area. 3 that he has had an accident near where he left his car. 
The days passed and they turned into weeks and there was still no sign of Lucan. Police were becoming frustrated and were all too happy to go along with the narrative that had formed in the press coverage that the old Claremont set had closed ranks to obfuscate the facts around the whereabouts of Lucan. This elite set were conspiring against the police in order to complicate the investigation and to erect an old guard around their friend. At least, that was the clear narrative fed to the public. In reality, this had some truth, but it was not quite as the papers would report it. On the 8th of November, many of Lucan's friends gathered for lunch to discuss everything that had happened. The papers reported it as a clandestine meeting where operations were discussed and plans to aid Lucan's escape were plotted. In truth, most of Lucan's friends did want to help Lucan, but only as any friend would. Bill Shan Kidd, who attended the lunch, later said, There was certainly no question of helping him flee. I said I certainly didn't think he'd done it, and I wanted to get hold of him as soon as possible before he did something silly, like killing himself or pissing off. This was a sentiment reflected by another attendee of the lunch, Daniel Minersergen. I would have helped John to turn himself in. But still, the narrative of us, meaning of course Veronica, versus them was good copy and persisted throughout. It is a narrative that still persists today. There were some elements, however, that did work to frustrate the police. Aspinall was one who, with his penchant for flair and for bending the law, did not help matters when he dropped clangor after clangor in interviews or purposefully wound up police during their various searches of his property. As Bill Shankid put it, who needs friends like Aspinall? In truth, the case against Lucan was almost entirely circumstantial. It was his words, scribbled in a letter, versus Veronica's. The most damning evidence against him lie in the fact that he had chosen to flee. The inquest was adjourned several times after a preliminary hearing whereby the identity of the body was confirmed. The full hearing was scheduled for the 16th of June 1975. It was heavily one-sided, given that the only person available to give a full statement was Veronica. Lucan's story could only be presented via the letters that he had written and the snippets given by his friends. There was, however, one other problem with the inquest, which was true of all coroner's inquests at the time. Cases could not be presented to the jury in the same way as that of a criminal trial. Statements could not be seen before the fact. Witnesses were selected solely by the coroner, who would have had access to evidence on his own time before the hearing, and would often arrive already with a conclusion in mind. And any time the coroner, witnesses or jury were addressed on the facts by the defence as questioning, if it was deemed it could place witnesses at a disadvantage in future criminal trial, they could be denied by legal right. Subsequently, any line of questioning in the Sandra River inquest that related to Lady and Lord Lucan's marriage and the problems that it involved were instantly shut down as were any lines of evidence that could be seen to damage Veronica's reputation. On the 19th of June 1975, the jury went out for just 31 minutes before returning a guilty verdict against Lord Lucan, who was found guilty of the murder of Sandra Rivet. On hearing the verdict, the coroner stated, I will record that Sandra Helen Rivet died from head injuries. The offence was committed by Richard John Bingham, Earl of Lucan, it is very rare for a coroner's court that a person is named as you have done. It is my duty to commit that person to trial at the Central Criminal Court. 
but in this case, there is nobody to commit for trial because we don't know where Lord Lucan is. Naturally, Lucan's friends and family were entirely unhappy about the outcome and they criticised the entire inquest heavily. The fact remained, however, that the coroner's final words were ringing true. A kind of justice may have been done, but the undeniable problem was still running. Where was Lord Lucan? In the years following the inquest, the search for Lucan sporadically continued to no avail. In 1980, Veronica was once again struggling with mental health issues, and by 1982, the Lucan children were living full-time with Lucan's friends, the Shan kids. In 1983, she was found wandering the streets of Belgravia and hospitalised, and in 1984, custody was given to the Shan kids officially. In later years, Veronica estranged her children, and in 2017, she committed suicide at the age of 80. Lucan, if still alive, would now be aged 84. Most believe that he committed suicide in 1974, but the myth of his disappearance has persisted. Sightings have come in as a steady stream, and it wasn't until 2016 that he was officially declared dead and his son George allowed to succeed his title as the 8th Earl of Lucan. Popular opinion leans towards the official conclusion given by the coroner's inquest in 1975, including at least half of Lucan's friends. The other half, however, at least publicly, believed in his innocence up until their deaths, and there are many theories as to what might have happened on the tragic night of 7th November 1973. Amongst the numerous theories of what may have happened and who may have murdered Sandra Rivet, there remain four that have persisted through various channels, put forward by people close to the case at the time. The first is that perhaps the attack was the consequence of a burglary gone wrong, either a common burglary or as an insurance thing set out by Lucan himself. This theory was aired by Lucan's son George in a TV interview in 2004. Any theory concerning a second attacker relies on two key pieces of evidence. Firstly, that the attack was carried out on Sandra rather than Veronica. If this was by mistake, how had Lucan not recognised his own wife? Secondly, the lack of witnesses that saw anyone leave the Lucan house after the attack. But then, no one saw Lucan leave either, and yet one theory is taken as a dead cert, whilst the other is thrown out instantly. There is also the matter of blood on the ivy outside in the garden, that the back door was unlocked, that there was a locked safe in the basement that had bloody footprints around the area it was in, and that the house could easily have been a target for burglary. It had been the target for an attempted robbery in 1962. The second theory is that Sandra was in fact the intended target for the attack, not Veronica. This theory revolves around Sandra's private life, which included several boyfriends, one of which she had broken up with only a few nights prior to the attack. Had Lucan, just in the case of a robbery, really walked past and seen someone attacking the nanny, only to enter the house in an attempt to help, causing the intruder to flee and Veronica to misconstrue matters. It seems far-fetched, but Veronica herself said in a 1981 interview in the News of the World, What is extraordinary is that there was no blood on Lord Lucan. Our daughter confirmed this. There is a theory that someone else was in the house and that it was he who killed Sandra and hit me and knocked me unconscious. Some people don't believe I could have withstood such heavy blows and it does seem strange that I did. 
I only know that at the time, I thought my husband had hit me. I didn't think I had fallen. Maybe I did. Maybe he had lifted me to my feet when I recovered consciousness. There could quite easily have been someone hiding downstairs or in the cloakroom. Our house was heavily carpeted, and I would not have heard him if they had kept still. I simply don't know. The third theory is that Veronica was the intended victim, and Sandra was killed accidentally by a hitman employed by Lucan. This theory clears up the concept, much like the burglary theory, of the mix-up between Sandra and Veronica. In both theories, there is one quite large piece of evidence that leans in favour of Lucan. A man named Billy Edgson, who worked at the Claremont, gave a statement to police that at 8.45pm, Lucan drove past the Claremont Club to ask who was in. If this fact is true, it becomes dangerously close to being an alibi for Lucan. The club was an eight-minute drive to Lower Belgrave Street on a good run, which left him less than ten minutes to drive from the club to the house, let himself in, unscrew the light bulb in the basement and conceal himself. However, the hitman theory raises questions too. If Lucan had hired a hitman, then why turn up at the house on the night of the attack at all? One suggestion is that he had a change of heart, and at the last minute he went in to stop the plan before it could be put into action. Susan Maxwell Scott's nanny aired a story that says exactly that, that when Lucan arrived at their house in Uckfield, this is the true story that he had told to Susan, not the public story that he walked by the house by pure chance and saw an unknown attacker. The fourth theory is, of course, the accepted truth, that Lucan is guilty of the attack in the basement and on Veronica. However, as the police themselves admitted at the time of the investigation, Almost all the evidence was entirely circumstantial and it boiled down to a case of Veronica's word versus Lucan's. The most damning evidence in the whole thing, evidence which of course can be pointed at across all theories, is if Veronica's version of events were the truth, why did Lucan run? Was it really through fear that as he saw the events of the custody case conspire against him, so too would the same happen here? Or was it just as it appears that he was a guilty man? For those closest to Lucan, about half contested his guilt, whilst the other half recognised in him an obsessive figure and one who was very probably guilty. Guilt aside, the mystery continues with Lucan's ultimate fate. Did he commit suicide by jumping from a ferry that departed in New Haven on the morning on the 8th of November, or did he somehow wind up in the surrounding countryside, lost and giving in to the elements? Did he escape by fishing boat or sail away himself? Or was he even in New Haven at all? There are more theories and stories behind all, but they are all just stories. The Maxwell Scott's driver told one such story when he said that his father, who was a driver for his family's Uckfield-based taxi company, drove Lucan from the Maxwell Scott's house in the early hours of the 8th of November to an airfield in Kent where he took a private plane to France. The driver then claims that he picked up a person himself from New Haven who had driven the Corsair to the port town to leave it there as a decoy for police. At the time, he claimed he knew nothing of the truth behind the request to drive someone from New Haven to Uckfield. Why would I think it was odd? Why is anyone anywhere? That was what I did. I was a taxi. It was only later that he learned the truth directly from his father. The police never questioned the family on the matter and the story was never offered not to the police, nor the papers. The fact remains, however, that if it were true, 
How had Lucan's letter to Michael Stoop contained the name of the street the car was parked in? And how is it on paper that was found taken from a notebook that was found within the car itself? Or were these all part of an elaborate decoy to aid his escape? Reported sightings since his disappearance are so numerous that it has been seen in almost every continent across the world, from places as remote as unnamed Pacific Islands to the bustling metropolis of Tokyo, Japan. The most credible stories place him somewhere in Africa, but like all the sightings, are entirely unconfirmed. If he did escape, how has he managed to not be found after all these years? How has no one talked? Why would he have not attempted to make contact with his children that he's so obsessed over? And if he did, how did he get away with it? And before any of these questions need to be asked, who would have bankrolled his existence for all these years? The myth of Lord Lucan so often falls into the trap of becoming one that enacts out a tale of class war. But just as one cannot paint all the working classes with a single stroke, so one would be equally foolish to do the same with the upper classes. It is a tragedy that has been surrounded by a myth, the disappearance of Lucan driving it for years. But behind that, the truth of the murder itself does not hold particularly satisfying answers. Was he guilty? Was he the attacker? Or was he, as his letters suggested, innocent in the whole affair? If he was innocent, why did he run? And if he didn't kill himself, where did he go? If Lord Lucan is still alive, then he has achieved something that very few have. A perfect vanishing act, disappearing without trace. A mystery upon a mystery upon a mystery, ladies and gents. So we're going to be discussing some of those theories very briefly, probably because I think this episode's running quite long, but specifically the ones based around New Haven because, and his disappearance, because I grew up there for 19 years and I know for a fact that at least two of those theories are nonsense. So let's discuss some of that after these short ads. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books, which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS, and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories 
and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month, including your first credit, to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel, and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash darkhistories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool, but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So, first of all, to sort of talk about, I guess, who done it is probably just the quickest thing. I do think Lucan is guilty. I just don't think he had any reason to run if he didn't do it. There's that kind of saying that the most simple solution is usually the right one. And when you look at it, you know, he was obsessed. He was probably feeling very desperate. And I, I just don't think he needed to run if it wasn't him. Even if he was concerned about the jury, I think he could have been, given time, he could have talked himself out of that concern and stayed. So I think I think there's there's very little reason to believe that it wasn't him. But there are some things that make you wonder, like, for me, for example, the blood in the garden. Now, I can buy the transference. There's a, there's a lot of complication with blood and where it was in the house and cross-contamination and things like that. But I can buy almost all of it being transference because they said they found like over 50 fingerprints, of, um, the fingerprints of over 50 different policemen on the scene and it was totally trampled over. So I, I can totally buy the transference, but... Blood in the garden, to me, that seems very out there. That's quite a strange one. And the other thing that sort of I find quite strange is that after the attack, there was sort of half an hour where Lucan and, and Lady Lucan just sat and chatted. That that and, and what did they chat about? She doesn't really sort of mention. And another thing that I do find quite interesting is, well, for starters, she seemed to sort of not change her story. She Apparently, she never changed her story right up until she died. But, I mean, there's that 1981 interview where she sort of hesitates and says, you know, I wasn't really sure. And when you think about it, she recognised her husband when he told her to shut up, which sounds aggressive. But how did he tell her to shut up? Did he sort of say shut up and, like, punch her or something? Or did he come out from behind her put his hand around her mouth and say, shut up, as in, shut up, there's a man downstairs. You know, like, when you consider it in that light, suddenly you think, wow, that could have been, if you're heightened anxiety anyway, seen as like an attack. 
And then they could have had a struggle and a fight, you know, and it all could have gone the way she said. She could have grabbed his balls and he could have stopped, at which point he could have taken her upstairs and she could have been misconstruing the whole thing at this point. And that makes you sort of think, right? Like, maybe he didn't do it. But I still think, at the end of the day, he just made himself look way too guilty. And I don't think he would have ran away if it wasn't him. So I'm sort of definitely leaning towards him being guilty in this case. But for me, the more interesting mystery is if he, you know, his disappearance. And, and, and I don't know if that's the more interesting part for everyone or if it's just because I was born there. But basically, I was born in New Haven. I grew up, spent 19 years there. And I lived about a few hundred yards from where the car was found. I walked past it daily, you know, so I know those streets very, very well. And although it was seven years before I was born and some of the roads have changed, for example, if you look at a modern map of New Haven, it's almost entirely useless because the road system is completely changed from 1974 and it had changed before I was born or when I was too young to understand those things. So it was very early that it had changed. But regardless, when you look at where the car was left, so let's take the theories of where he went when he got into New Haven, right? Some people say that he got on a ferry and either escaped to France or threw himself off and killed himself. But when you look at the ferry terminal, it's a very long way from where the car was parked. Now, it was late at night. He'd possibly been drinking. He had taken four Valium and he'd parked up in a strange town that he'd never been to. Now, it would have been signposted, but that's sort of irrelevant because from the car park, where the car was parked to the ferry terminal, you have to walk about two, possibly three miles through a town along past a big load of industrial units and then down what's essentially a side road to almost a dead end where the only thing down there is a ferry terminal and an old concrete bridge that crosses over the railway tracks to a sort of very secluded area of beach. And you to get there, you have to pass all these kind of industrial units and things like that. And, and at the sort of residential, it's a residential street, but on what the other side, it's all industrial. And you, if you were not knowing where you were going, you would probably be led to believe at this point that you're walking into a dead end, essentially. So I don't think he got on a ferry. I, I think it's a very convoluted route to take, especially if you're a bit drunk and doped up. I think it's an even more convoluted route to take. And I, I mean, I spoke to my parents about this because, say, my parents' generation are the ones that really know this story because everyone knew it where I was born. You know, everyone talks about I mean, everyone knew it nationally anyway. But especially being New Haven, it was kind of like, this town's a small town. It was one of the things, you know, very few things that it's ever really been famous for, if you like. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of 15 minutes of fame. So a lot of people knew this story. Yeah, I, I, I speak to my parents about it and um, I called them up a few times. I've had a coffee with my dad and spoke to him about it. And um, we were talking about the ferry and he, my dad was saying, like, at the time, the ferry was much busier than when I grew up. Because when I grew up, the ferry was still very busy it was still an important link to France but it, it was kind of on the wane 
But back then it wasn't, and it would have been very busy. And uh, the days that they got it would have you would have seen like a lot of um, the industrial workers in the area would do like trips with their firms or their companies, and um, it was always on those days. So the ferry would have been basically pretty full. So it does seem unlikely that he got on a ferry. Uh, the second sort of theory, which is that I completely disagree with, and even growing up later, I can understand. It, it you can blow it, I, you can blow a hole in it immediately, basically, and that's that he got on a fishing boat. So one of the theories is that he paid a fisherman, or you know, his friends paid a fisherman to help him escape on a fishing boat. And the papers wrote that there was over a thousand fishing boats, and that the police had searched over a thousand fishing boats. That's just impossible. It's just not true. It can't be true. There's, there, there wasn't room for a thousand fishing boats, not anywhere near. I thought it was probably, when I grew up, maximum 50. And when I spoke to my parents about it, say I, obviously I spoke to them quite a bit, I asked them, you know, how many boats do you think were in New Haven in the 70s? They said 100 tops, but probably closer to 50 and maybe even 20. Like They went down that low, depending basically on if you counted the boats that would be kind of moored up and not moving even, because there was an area of that heart, of the port, which was for boats that were basically damaged and being repaired. There was a whole kind of repairing in place in the corner. So if you counted them as well, the number went up slightly, but obviously they were out of service, so it didn't really count anyway, because they wouldn't have been able to take him anywhere. But one of the bigger things is, there just wasn't that many fishermen. Although, obviously, it was a fishing port, it's a small town, and they were, I think, about three fishing families, because most of the fishing was kind of kept almost sort of in family. And, of course, they had fishermen that worked for them, but it was, they were small family-run businesses, basically. And everyone knew who they were, because they were kind of, I wouldn't say famous in the town, but... They were kind of old families in the town, like old fishing families. You know, the business had been passed down. So everyone knew them and everyone knew who they were. And there's just no way if one of them took Lucan to France, it would have remained a secret. Absolutely no way. It would just would not have been possible. Not even for a second. It's, it's, it's simply unfeasible. Like that whole fishing line is completely unfeasible to me it's just i say all of this is circumstantial you know i'm only telling you this from my experience and obviously that doesn't mean anything because it's all you know it could have happened i suppose but but from my experience just no way it was just impossible so those theories are kind of moot and also the one of him going onto the downs but that's moot the, 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 the town is surrounded by a lot of countryside but people could be found and people were found even in the search people were found and they found bodies that were up there for years so that kind of goes for and against it because obviously their bodies have been up there for years without being found but the search was so thorough that they then found them and I, I don't think that, that that he would have got very far on the downs and if he did where would he have gone for me the more interesting story of his escape is the one where he went to Kent and flew on the private aeroplane that's a very interesting story. I and I, I am more willing to believe that the car was just a decoy 
There's a few reasons, really, when you look at it. Like, why did the driver not tell anyone? You know, it was like almost like a family kind of secret. Like, like the police didn't ask, so they didn't tell it, which is, you know, common. Why get, you know, why get yourself involved if you don't need to? It's, it's quite a common attitude to take. And secondly, you know, he never sold it to the papers. Now, this was a pretty hot topic. And, you know, there was there would have been money in that story if he'd have taken it to the papers because the papers were loving the fact that Lucan couldn't be found. You know, it was a story that ran for years. It, it still runs now, really. You know, you still, from time to time, get stories right up until modern day that have, you know, sightings of Lucan. So back in the day, you know, it was a it was a popular story and he would have been paid for that story for sure. So why didn't he do it then? You know, he didn't at all. The only reason he told it now, at the start of his story, he says, you know, they're dead now, so it's not going to hurt them. I might as well tell you. But also, why did Lucan need to burn the envelope if it was sent from New Haven? Because the paper was torn from a notepad that was in the found in the car. Now, if he'd have really postmarked that from New Haven, why burn the envelope? Why did he tell him to burn the envelope? Which leads you to believe that it was perhaps posted from somewhere else and therefore the car may have been a decoy. So then you're kind of left thinking, well, okay, maybe the car really was a decoy. But then if that's true, why couldn't whoever just driven the car to New Haven just posted the letters at the same time? So, you know, all of these things... As with almost everything in the Lucan case, there there, is, there are arguments that can be made for and against. And I, and I guess that's why it's persisted for so long, because nothing is clear. I would say the most popular kind of story and the kind of thing that sort of runs the myth is that he killed the nanny and then escaped. That's the kind of popular myth. But it's all kind of, all these other theories go along and they all can be like debated and talked about and holes can be pulled in them and cases can be made and 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 they're all quite strong for and against really so in the end i guess we're left really with a mystery and a mystery that really kind of deserves its legendary status and i can't believe i overlooked it for so long to be honest anyway i think this has run for quite a long time so i'm going to call it a day and i will definitely be scheduling a live stream for this one because i think people are going to have a lot to talk about and we haven't had a live stream for ages. So if you're interested in that, jump on the website, um, darkhistories.com, and you can find links to the Discord server and things like that where we run the live streams. The live streams are on YouTube. You can watch them there and you can interact on the chat or you can actually come on our Discord and actually jump on the live stream and talk with us, like talk with me and all the other people that come on. It's a free-for-all, basically. It's quite casual. So yeah, if, if you've not, got involved in a live stream before and you want to you're more than welcome places are are limited and they do go to patrons kind of get sort of first refusal but to be honest they're not that limited and we usually have space so you're more than welcome to come along say it's a free-for-all and it's quite casual it's not like a strict conversation um so yeah come along join in that because i think this one will be a good one and i'll schedule that for next weekend and I will post about it on social media once I've figured out the timings for that. Otherwise, you can find us on social media. All the links from darkhistories.com. If you go there, you can find that. As well as all the links to support and the ways in which you can do so. 
any support would be greatly appreciated, but not necessary. Thanks very much for listening. So I'm going to leave it there because I think really this is probably running quite long, long now. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. It's been a real pleasure. And hopefully I'll see you at the live stream. If not, yesterday, today is going to be continuing tomorrow. So I'll speak to you then. Cheers.